Thanks for downloading this official Munster Rugby podcast. For more, go to MunsterRugby.ie or subscribe to Munster Rugby on SoundCloud or iTunes. Ian, thanks very much for joining us. I suppose we'll start with, with your first few weeks settling into the role last year. How did you manage or how did you find um, starting working with Munster Rugby? Ah, thank you, Sean. Um, good to see you again. Uh, it feels like a while since we were in the office together. Look, Munster is a very special place. Um, I think um, our fans know that, uh, our supporters know that, all our players uh, at the clubs throughout Munster, our volunteers, uh, the players in our in our academy and senior squad, you know, the, the players who come in. Um, from other countries and and stay for a period of time and move on. Um, the the one thing they all say um, is how special a place Munster is. It's what a special club it is to play for. What special fans we have. Um, I think even people who don't know rugby will know what Munster represents. Will be aware of the red jersey that goes everywhere wherever we play, and you'll you'll see nothing but a field of red red jerseys in in the stadium, and and that's something very special to have and something we we value and we cherish um and obviously you know i was one of those red jerseys i knew monster from the outside if if you like so it's been it's been very um it's a it's, it's a huge honor and privilege to to come to the club and uh, and to lead the club it's a hugely exciting time for for rugby in terms of what may happen in rugby um in the coming years i think rugby is going to attract huge new audiences i think there's an enormous uh, potential opportunity for munster probably more than any club to um, increase our number of fans around the world uh for first generation rugby supporters to identify with with munster as a club and i think all, all those opportunities are still there even you know through the times in which we're living at the moment now, where where life and sport, as we know it, are essentially on hold. But I I thought it was a fantastic opportunity. Um, I want to obviously pay tribute to my predecessor Garrett Fitzgerald, um, who was the the original Mister Munster, um, our first and only CEO. And and Garrett sad, sadly passed away in in February of this year. So in a sense, the the whole season has been overshadowed by that as well. So long be, long before the virus kind of in, interrupted our lives, Garrett has left the club um, in fantastic shape. Um, there's an amazing organisation. It's just been really re- refreshing actually to meet everyone in Munster and get to know them and work with them closely in the last number of months. Um, I, I I guess you'd almost compare it. It's almost a, a little bit like a vocation that people really appreciate that it's it's more than a job and it's a very special club to work for um and and to work inside and um and that and that's that's really special you you will see lots of sports clubs around the world in in various sports who who say they're more than a club and um you know and i mean i think m- most people who understand sport probably realize that there's only literally a handful of of sports clubs that Gen- genuinely mean something more than just the club and, and I would certainly put Munster in, in that bracket. And for supporters maybe who would know too much about you, could you tell us some information about your own background? Sure, um, I've, I've worked in elite sport for, for over two decades, um, always on the, the, the commercial side 
uh, I never had much of a, a career on, on, on the actual playing side, um, unfortunately. But um, uh, I originally, um, I was originally an academic and uh, I did a PhD and was planning a, a career in, in, in possibly university lecturing and, and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and I just um, got very bored doing that. And, um, and the only thing I was interested in when I sat down with the, the career advisory people was I love sport and I wanted to work in sport. And I, w- I was just very fortunate again, you know, over 20 years ago now, I was very fortunate that having a proper career in sport was, was becoming a real thing. Uh, obviously rugby, you know, I just turned professional. Gen- generally in the sports world, you tend to look to America because they tend to be some time ahead of the other territories in terms of innovation around sport. And certainly in the US, you know, they were hiring uh, PhDs, they were hiring MBAs right from the 1960s. You know, they were almost like uh, investment banks or management consultancies in that regard that that they just thought they needed, you know, smart people with qualifications like that in in, in the business to, you know, run run the clubs, run the leagues, uh, develop the sport. And uh, and literally that was the only place in the world where that was really happening. And then things began to change a little bit, um, primarily the big uh, football clubs in Europe, in the Premier League and in Spain started to adopt kind of similar policies. And and you, you began to kind of see people with, with real university qualifications going into sport as a proper career. So I was just very fortunate when I came out with, with my with my PhD that um, that that was beginning to happen and I, I started with a big London um, sports agency. We represented um, talent, so we represented primarily a lot of Formula One drivers, a lot of the American racing drivers in uh, NASCAR and IndyCar, represented a lot of Ryder Cup golfers. Uh, we, we then, probably more relevant to this conversation, we represented the England rugby team. Uh, and we looked after them when they won the World Cup in 2003, you know, the likes of Martin Johnson and Delalio and all those guys. And we also looked after the, the England football team at the same time. It was my job to essentially uh, future-proof the business. So, I mean, I've had, God knows, a number of other jobs since then in sport. But essentially, my, my job has always been the same in some ways. Uh, my, my job was to understand what was going to happen in sport in the next five years, essentially and to advise the company and advise our clients. Um, so essentially back then it was understanding where, what was going to happen to rugby rights, to football rights, uh, which countries were going to stage Formula One races in five years time, where new audiences were going to develop around the world, particularly places like India, like Asia, like the US, for, for the sports that were very strong in Europe. So, um, and, and then to understand uh, the commercial brands that were emerging in those countries that no one really knew about in our part of the world, but were going to become big global brands. And, you know, in many ways, as I say, my job has largely remained the same to try to understand where sport as a whole and individual sports are going, how they're developing around the world, how they're growing their audiences, engaging with fan bases, um, finding new supporters, and, you know, ultimately trying to... Um, ensure that the sports um, that I'm working in and for that they they're successful as a business as well and that we bring in more revenue and more money for them and that that we help them to grow and that we manage to you know 
get get the message out to the world you know what what amazing people these these guys are and uh um, what a great thing this club is so so that was that was my first job and uh i was there for a number of years the last i guess similar disruption to life then was uh, the financial crash in 2008 and at that stage um i was in abu dhabi i relocated to the middle east where where business largely continued uninterrupted and uh, i had a sports business on the back of that i came back to london and was working um as a consultant for dhl um as their global sports sponsorship guy effectively I did. It was pretty much one of the biggest deals in the world. Back in 2011, uh, I did the the first ever Premier League football standalone training kit deal, which was uh, with Manchester United. I'm very proud of that because it genuinely was a big innovation. Uh, we created an entirely new sponsorship category. After the DHL piece, I uh, I took a job at a at a football club. I went and worked with Leicester City as commercial director. And I was there for four years, and um, and that took in, you know, uh, I think most people are aware of Leicester as, as in terms of the story of Leicester and what happened. Um, and it was just a, again another great journey and a very great thing to be part of. That uh, it was, you know, a relatively big club in the Championship in the second division, uh, effectively of English football. When I went, and two years after that. It was promoted to the Premier League and, you know, the business was just changing year on year and growing so quickly. And it was it was great to essentially you know, build a team and structure a team and be involved with growing uh, sports clubs hugely um, in that period. And obviously, you know, we ended up winning the Premier League and it was a huge story around the world. And it, it just, um, again, created a really interesting time where we could have conversations with global brands and we were looking at stadium development and training new training grounds and you know having to expand our digital uh, capacity hugely and engage with fans in new countries and different languages you know really for the first time so it was really a great transformation project and a growth project so you know all those things were a great to be part of but i also hope to bring some of the things some of the innovations some of the things i've seen and learned along the way in that journey um you know, to Munster and to Irish Independent Park and to Toman Park and and then before I came to Munster I was I was working with um my South African company who who do all the work around Stormers and Newlands Rugby Stadium uh and they operate Cape Town Sevens and we we essentially had a, a boutique in, uh business that I I ran uh, on the sport investment side uh, working with individuals and groups um, who were essentially looking to invest in sports, and then Munster came calling, and um, and I couldn't say no. I suppose the whole world has been turned upside down over the last three months. Your your own experience probably comes in handy there. And how do you think the organisation have managed the um, the situation? Um, I, look, I think um, no one can really prepare for a pandemic. It literally is unprecedented. In in our lifetime, I mean, I think it's it's probably a hundred years since there was anything comparable. So it, it poses huge challenges, and I'm I'm not going to um, you know hide that it poses huge challenge to to us. But it's a shared challenge. It's it's the same challenges facing every other sports club 
in Ireland, every sports club pretty much around the world and every business around the world. So we're not unique. Um, I think we're we're in reasonable shape. And, and again, I'll, I'll caveat that. Um, we The financial challenges are, are obviously extensive. Match day income from ticketing, from hospitality, from merchandise, you know, all of that is, is a big part of our, our annual revenue. And that has stopped stopped dead since our, our last game um, in February at Tillman Park and um, and we're like the other Irish provinces in, in that regard. Now, the RFU, their revenue streams are slightly different um, in that their broadcast deals represent proportionately a bigger slice of the overall revenue. So, for example, if the Six Nations outstanding games, and I'm talking about the Italy game, especially if that gets replayed, if and when that gets replayed in Dublin, and even if that's behind closed doors, which is you know, the, the model that's on the table at the moment, it's still uh, going to deliver revenue for the RFU through broadcasting and central sponsorship deals and from the overall Six Nations kind of end of year um, you know, competition dividend. When we play games and when we get back, hopefully, and we can talk about this a little bit more, when we get back to playing games and if those games are behind closed doors, which again is is the current expectation, it is uh, a step on the road back to normal, if I if I can term it like that. But it, it is nowhere near rugby as normal and revenues as normal because we, we absolutely do need to be playing games in front of our supporters again for, for that to happen. So. I, I don't think any business in the world can adjust naturally and easily to having virtually all its revenue just stop dead overnight and unexpectedly. And for for that revenue then to be stopped for an indefinite period of time. So what we are trying to do is to address the challenges in in the right manner. Um, obviously, all of the, the provinces are ultimately owned by the IRFU. And we are working very closely with the RFU through this period to protect our people as best we can, because we have some excellent people working in our organizations. And also, you know, the stated objective is that we want to ensure that Munster and the other provinces are all still standing as viable clubs and as competitive clubs when this is all over and when we take the field again. And and similarly for the, the Irish national team. So, no, that is the, the objective and that the domestic game is, is protected as well. So, so those are our starting points and all of the actions we're taking at the moment are with the aim of delivering against those three pillars that were identified on day one when this crisis struck. I also you know, should note that the Irish government has obviously been, been supportive of rugby as it has been supportive of many other businesses throughout the country. I think we're in, in a very uncertain landscape. We are doing everything in lockstep with the RFU and the other provinces. Again, as best we can, because every province has slightly different uh, scenarios and, and internal issues to deal with. But as much as possible, we're, we're doing our best to stay aligned and we're wor- working very closely with the RFU to, to plot our way through this. And I think a few supporters were worried that maybe some incoming signings might be um, might have been affected, but there's there's been no effect there. No, look, um, the stated pillars were to make sure that you know we're 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 a competitive club on the other side of this. So um, you know, in in as much as we can, we we are uh, you know trying to continue 
to a degree with business as usual, certainly in terms of the senior squad. And and again, it, you know, to be clear, the the plan to which we're working at the moment and the plan which is being submitted to the Irish government, you know, has earmarked the twenty second of August as a date when we will take the field. That is the target date to which we're working at the moment, and that is the date that we're discussing with the Irish government and the Department of Health and so on. And it's all aspirational, but that is the current plan. So everything we do is is geared to being back playing those games and those games will be very much a, a wrap up of the current season. And and Pro 14 has has then identified first weekend of October as the start of the next season. So in as much as we can, we're we're obviously led entirely by the Irish government roadmap for the return to to normal life in inverted commas. And we're we're following that closely and adhering to that at all times. Um, but we have a plan to get back and, you know, we very much hope and fingers crossed from everyone that we can get back playing rugby then. In terms of Orgy and uh, Damien, both are, are now in Limerick. Orgy and his wife are, are still going through the final days of their, their quarantine. And Damien has completed his 14 day period and has moved into a house. So. It, look, it's. Uh, I have sympathy for for all of the the guys who've arrived. Roman has arrived as well, and we're just waiting for Matt Gallagher, who's um, arriving quite soon. I have a huge amount of sympathy for them. It can't be easy coming to a new city. It's never easy at the best of times, or a new country. In, in the case of um, you know three of the players, and and to encounter you know what Munster is known for is our our welcome and our friendliness and all of the people helping you settle in and, and all of that. And uh, I was speaking to Johan about when he arrived and, you know, he had a whole uh, bunch of guys from Nilo Donovan uh, and George Murray take him out for a drink that night to welcome him to Limerick and to Munster. And, and you know, it's a great shame. You know, we, we can't, you know, be physically close to, to welcome um, uh, our new players yet. I mean, I've spoken uh, to them and Johan has has kind of, you know, been around to wave through the window at them and stuff like that. But it's a very strange time. So it, it, it can't be easy for them, but they're settling in well or as well as can be expected in the in the circumstances. And, you know, I think I I echo what every Munster supporter is is saying and thinking, which is I can't wait to see, you know, these guys run out in a, in a red shirt for the first time, because um, I think we've um, added to a strong squad. I think we've brought in some very talented players and and I can't wait to to see them out there, you know, representing Munster and wearing that shirt. Recently, there was the um, the very unfortunate uh, case for James Cronin. Um, has the review on the anti-doping education and protocols taken place? Yeah, yes, it has, Sean. Um, we take anti we take doping and any issues associated with doping incredibly seriously, um, as does all of Irish rugby. It's I have a. I I'll also say I have a huge amount of sympathy for for James. Uh, in in this, um, I think he's been incredibly unfortunate. We well, I personally and several other of my my colleagues have spent a, a huge amount of time and hours going through all of this and being part of the process. Um, it's the first time I've been intimately involved with a case like this, and I've been incredibly impressed by the thoroughness of the process we want our sport to be clean it's in vital uh to to rugby 
it's what we're all about in terms of rugby's core values, that it's a clean sport and that it's a fair sport. And that is the message you know, we want to go out to our supports and to you know, our younger players at clubs and our younger players coming into the academy. Um, so on, on the back of that, yes, we have reviewed our processes because you, know, you can always you know, do better. And, and certainly, you know, that was my first question. Uh, you know, is there is there something we missed out on here? And, I, and I, I'm confident have, having looked at, at this in great detail that this was just a very unfortunate uh, third party dispensing error. And, you know, it literally could happen to the man in the street where where a wrong uh, prescription is dispensed. And um, I think clearly the, the sanction, the, the one month sanction, reflects the fact that there was no significant blame or fault attached to James. And, you know, we've made it clear that um, you know, we're looking forward to seeing James come back and playing for Munster again. He's lived through a huge amount of stress and worry because um, no one knows how a process and an investigation is, and a sanction is, is going to work out. And over the last number of months, we've had all games called off and season ticket holders have been affected with their um, purchase of season ticket for the entire season and the season's kind of been disrupted. But there, there's been great patience from the fans. Would you have a message um, just for supporters? I do. Uh, we want to thank, thank all of our supporters for you know, their amazing support of the club. Um, I think um, it's heartbreaking to see you know, the two stadia Irish Independent Park and Tobar empty uh, and not know when we'll see it you know, filled with supporters again. I've, I've been overwhelmed by the the volume of messages, emails, calls um, from supporters and 10-year ticket holders and season ticket holders from MRSC members, um, from Munster supporters around the world, you know, wanting to know um, how they can help, if there's anything they can do to support the club because they they know that this is uh, an incredibly challenging environment um, for for all sports clubs. I I honestly can't wait for the day that um, we can reopen uh, the stadium and and have our supporters back cheering on the team because um, I've been watching some of the games from some of the sports that have returned already, the Australian club rugby games and the German football games in the Bundesliga and. It, it feels very soulless watching games without supporters and and we all know how how important the supporters are to Munster especially. Our crowd has traditionally always been so loud and so noisy and passionate and strong and have maybe, you know, they've really played a key role down through the years, dragging the team over the line. You know, and, 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 and that's you know, that's I think that's that's a great reflection of how much we need our supporters. We are hopeful um, that when it's possible and with the agreement and guarantee and backing of the Irish government that we can get some supporters back into the ground. I think it's realistic to look on the basis that there'll probably be a phased re-entry of supporters to Stadia and we, we may not have full capacity on, on day one. So there's an awful lot of planning and modelling to do around that. So I think we're going to wait until we've got further clarity in terms of the, the Irish government roadmap and how that is unfolding and if that's going according to plan. And then assuming we start the Pro 14 season in the first week of October, are we having a season as normal? Are we 
are we not having uh, supporters into ground for a period of time? All of those things are, are still very unclear. There is an expert sport working group which has been convened um, with all of the major sports represented um, by their chief medical people. And that is liaising closely with the Department of Health, with NEFID, with HSE and with the Department of Sport. So there's very significant ongoing discussions and we're obviously involved in all of those and party to them. There have been very comprehensive documents submitted to the government around returning to train and returning to play. Obviously, the RFU has just um, issued a summary for a return to rugby protocols for the domestic game and the club game as well. So there's a huge amount of planning going on. There's a huge amount of work going on and it's all necessary. But we we are very, very keen to bring rugby back as soon as possible, as soon as it is safe to do so. I would say to people, I'm cautiously optimistic that we'll be back playing rugby maybe sooner than some people expect. And I'm also hopeful that you know, we can get people back back into the stadium in a reasonable time frame as well. I mean, there's no clarity yet on that uh, from any sport around the world. But we're obviously, you know, that's literally a case of, of waiting and seeing. But when it's safe to do so, we can't wait to welcome you all back because you, you are the 16th player. Thanks for downloading this official Munster Rugby podcast. For more, go to munsterrugby.ie or subscribe to Munster Rugby on SoundCloud or iTunes.